and the Reformation, I think it would be true to say, brought the gospel back into focus when it had been obscured and confused, if not twisted and totally denied. And it raises the question, if I go and listen to this Christian teacher in this Christian church, will I hear the message which will save me? Or will I be given information which will, is either irrelevant or which will either lead me to hell? And uh, it, it is so important that if you go through the door of a Christian church, or a church that, that claims to be Christian, that you will hear a message that will save you. And, and sadly, that's not the case. Anyway, this was what was uh, hammered out in the Reformation times. And we've been going through these five um, catchphrases or five slogans. I don't think they originate from those days. I think they've been made up later and put into Latin so that it makes it sound much more impressive. But, I mean, it's just impressive whatever language you use. Uh, so, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola Christus, sola gratia, sola... Sola Dei Gloria, and I'm not, sure, not quite sure whether the cases are quite right, whether the grammar's quite right in all of those, but anyway, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, that's the foundation principle. How do we get to know what God is saying? We look in the Bible. I mean, it's simple enough, isn't it? But it's actually a very powerful principle. What's the culture around us saying? What does the culture around us think is, is fair and right and just? That is not the issue. The issue is what does God say? What does it say in Scripture? What's the way to be saved? What seems intuitively right to us? What seems the prevailing mood of what, how to live a, a, a flourishing life? That's not the issue. The issue is what does the Bible say? And how to be saved is something God shows us from heaven because we wouldn't know it any other way. So sola scriptura is sort of the foundation principle and then we looked at sola fide, which is by faith alone. That's a contraction. That is, um, you know, you need to expand it a little bit to understand what it means. And I put there a clue. It's J something by something. So anybody uh, fill in the blanks there. This by faith alone is a shorthand form for. Exactly. Well done. Justification by faith alone. Justification is when, when God says... These are the people who, in my book, are innocent. Um, they are the people who are right, uh, and I will treat them as such. And the, the extraordinary thing is that God says, um, I will treat people as righteous, not because they are righteous, not because they've lived righteously, but because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and this remarkable doctrine of justification by faith alone. I've got some references that are going to come up, and I'm going to whiz to this one, which is Romans 4, 4 to 8, which you may remember, it contains the expression, Now to one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as or unto righteousness. And that phrase that God justifies the ungodly, it seems so counterintuitive, so appalling really, doesn't it? But God counts as innocent 
and righteous people who are in their behavior and past life ungodly and he does it because Jesus died for them. Which brings us to solo Christus. Um, Christ alone be a good title for a song, wouldn't it? I mean, we put in in front of it as well. Uh, Daniel did a fantastic exposition of this. And I've just got one key verse here, which I will just tell you what it says. It's John 19.30, where Jesus cries out from the cross, It is finished. And I think that that expression captures it, doesn't it? I've done, I've done everything that's necessary for the salvation of my people. Christ says, done it, finished, all satisfied, nothing else. They don't need to add anything to this. They don't need to pay their own way. They don't need to make a contribution because I've finished it. Yes? So that's what he did on the cross. And then, uh, solo gratia, by grace alone... Unfortunately, I missed this because I was a bit poorly last week. But it, the, one, the, the verse that struck me um, when I was thinking about it is in Romans 9. And I'd, I'm not sure whether Daniel took it in this direction. But grace alone is when God shows favor for no reason at all other than he shows favor. Uh, that's what it, it is, grace alone. I've shown favor to people simply because... I've decided to show favor to them. So, uh, is his favor based on deserving? No, it's based on the fact he decided to show favor. Is his favor based on their merit? No, it's it's on the basis that he's decided to show favor. Is it on the basis of their racial characteristics? No, it's on the basis that he's decided to show favor. Is it on the basis of their intellect, because they're clever people, he decides to favor them? No, it's on the basis that he decides to favor them. Is it on the basis of their appearance, that they're beautiful-looking people? No, it's because, Jesus, because God has decided to favor them. And you could call this choosing. You could call it God just deciding, I'm going to favor those people. And at its starkest and most... Um, Shocking, really. You get it in Romans 9, for example, verse 10. Uh, Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And it's written in this way a little bit later. Jacob, I have loved... Esau I have hated. Now then, is this unfair? What shall I say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is not down to human will or desire or effort, but just God deciding to favor people. And that is a really profound truth that we come up against. Why am I a Christian? Because I was clever, beautiful, strong, spiritual. Absolutely not, because, bottom line, God decided to favor me for no other reason than he decided to favor me. So, by grace alone. And the one that we're looking at this evening is uh, to God's glory alone. Glory to God alone. 
And um, this, if the solar scripture is a sort of foundation of the home thing, then the God's glory alone is sort of the motivation for the whole thing. Why does God do these things? Why does God save sinners? Why, does God, why did God send his son so that he could seem glorious? So that God would get the glory. Um, the whole thing of the gospel and actually everything else is that God would appear glorious. So, that's what we're going to look at. And we prayed at the beginning, and I continue to pray, that God will show us his glory. Now, let's do a little bit on the word glory. The Hebrew word is kabod, and I have to look up how to spell it. Like that. Um, and it, it has the original meaning of sort of heaviness or weightiness. Um, it, it's in that sort of area of, 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 of thinking. So his glory is his sort of substantial weight and um, worth. Uh, so in the, in the dictionary it says his glory, his honor, his uh, abundance, his riches, his splendor. Um, so there's sort of weightiness and in Greek it's doxa which I'm sure you knew that, didn't you? From which we get doxology and things like that. And kabod, you knew that anyway because there was a child who was called no glory, Ichabod. Yeah, okay. So doxa, and this is more to do with, let me look it up, it says it's to do with forming an estimate, an opinion, uh, how things come across to you, so this is something to do with, let's, um, uh, what have I got here? Uh, yes, a, a good opinion, something like that, a good opinion, so that you say, wow, wasn't that wonderful? Um, so it's sort of the praise and, and honor, that sort of area. So those two words give us a, sort of the, the direction that uh, the words are coming from. Um, and there's a lot about God's glory in the Old Testament. And as we read it and use that word, or the translation of it, we think God is a mighty, splendid, substantial, glorious God. We think of the honor of God, the greatness of God. And when we've got this word, it makes us sort of think that we see God's glory and we go, wow, isn't God amazing? Uh, isn't he wonderful? Isn't he awesome? And then after a while we run out of words because God's glory is too big. Because we just run out of words to say how great he is. Uh, and we're thinking in terms of his reputation, his revealed character. It comes very close to the idea of his name. Um, his name is his revealed character. Um, and as we see who God is we respond by saying, um, isn't he great? I mean, we, you, you could see the glory of things like um, uh, a creative thing, so waterfalls. I don't know what, whether you like waterfalls or mountains or forests or something like that, and you think, this is amazing, this is wonderful. I must send a, a picture of this home to the people at home because this is such a great thing. Or the stars in the sky, our um, Lodge Gero loved taking what they call astronomical as, astrophotography 
Is that a word? But just seeing all the, all the stars, absolutely fantastic. And you, you, you re- respond to the, the glory that's there by saying it's fantastic. Or, um, now you know that I'm not a big fan of football because I just... But I can imagine the idea of a most beautiful goal. And you think the way they just opened up that space, the way he sort of intuitively ran into the space, the way he caught the ball on balance, the way he just flicked it past the goalkeeper... Absolutely fantastic. Did you see that? And you put, let's replay that because, oh, that was so wonderful. The way he did that was brilliant. And so we have this idea of glory being sort of magnificent things in themselves being glorious, or the way somebody's done something being glorious. You say, oh, that was just fantastic. The way things are, or the way they operate. And it seems to me that it's not such a bad thought that in the Bible, God's glory is the way he is, and it's the way he operates. And both of those things um, combined or whatever um, uh, are a a reasonable way of saying this is about God's glory. So let's read some texts. So Psalm 29, 1 to 3. And could we have somebody from around, around near Mark to read that? There's a microphone there somewhere, isn't there? Testing one, two. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. Thank you. Fantastic psalm, full of sort of vigor and strength. Uh, Let me ask you a couple of questions. So does it say anything here about who God is? Does it say anything about the way he operates? And does it say anything else as well? So I think you can put up a hand or call out. Does it say anything about God? Yep. He's He's powerful. He's powerful. 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 Yep, that's true. Yes. Thank you. He's he's holy. He's holy. Yeah. Yep. Heavenly being. Heavenly being. Oh, heavenly yes. beings. Yeah. There's something that heavenly beings should be doing. What should the heavenly beings be doing? In this first sentence. Yeah, ascribing. God, glory. I have a feeling, and I haven't checked it up recently, I think it is just the word give. So if you look at the way those uh, those words are operating, it says God is the God of glory in verse 3. Yes, that's what his name is, the God of glory. It says what he's doing, um, he's thundering, and he's sort of seen in the storm as it approaches over the desert. And there is a response called for which is to do what what's the response that's called for in the psalm yeah to give him glory so there's a little bit of a putting it in a nutshell there that's who he is that's how he operates and the response of people is to say yes i 
give you the glory. I mean, it isn't that he lacks glory, but it's our response to say the glory belongs to him. Look at, look at that. So let's look at uh, Psalm 24, verses 7 and 8. Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Amen. So there's a question, who, um, who is the King of glory? And the answer is, the Lord is the King of glory. I mean, it's, um, it's a wonderful declaration, isn't it? Who is the glorious King? Yahweh God. He is the king of glory, uh, and he's coming, uh, in some sense, to his city. Deuteronomy 28, 58. <laughs> Go on, Jess, you could read it. <laughs> Deuteronomy 28 verse 58 Deuteronomy 28 58 if you do not carefully follow all the words of this law which are written in this book and do not revert this glorious and awesome name the Lord your God that are the Lord will send fearful plagues but just stopping on that particular phrase thank you um, revering the glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. You see how it all connects together, his, um, his glory, his name, and his awesomeness uh, to be feared, to be revered, to be impressed by how great is this glorious God. So God himself is glorious, uh, that is who he is. Who is the king of glory? The Lord is the king of glory. Let's see something about how this glory is shown. I, I've got loads of references. I'm just trying to pick out things that will stick with us. Psalm 19 verse 1 speaks about the way God expresses and shows his glory in, well, you can tell me, Psalm 19 verse 1. Maybe, who, has anybody got the microphone? Yep. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the, declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Thank you very much. So how is the glory of God shown in this verse? In the heavens, yep. Um, yeah, the sky, the stars. And it's a, sorry? Yeah, the works... Yeah, the works of his hands. So this is about the way he's operated, um, th th what he's done in making the world. And this whole idea that the world is sort of speaking out the, uh, the, the nature of the person who's made it. And it the, the, the creation has God's fingerprints on it, as, it, as, it, as, you, as you might put it. Um, when I was making a guitar a long time, 
time ago, I went and bought a pickup from Kent Armstrong, whose father was one of the inventors of um, electric guitars. Kent Armstrong made pickups by making a mold and, and forming it and then pouring, putting the electrics in and then pouring a resin in and then when it was all set he lifted it out. And the one I've got, when he made the mold he left his thumbprint on the mold and when, he, when you pull the guitar pickup out it had his thumbprint on it. It had the thumbprint of the maker on the thing that was made. And this is saying that creation has the thumbprint of God, if you like, or, or even more than that, but it's expressing his glory in creation. Let's look at Psalm 8, verses 1 and 2. O oh Lord, our, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Thank you. What about, could you just the next couple of verses as well, please? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Thank you very much. Um, there's another verse expressing the fact that um, the Lord's name is majestic and then coupling it with his glory in the heavens and then coupling that with the response of the children and infants, which I, I, the praise of children and infants in, in response to it. So even, I toy with the idea that the children and infants of the Israelites, could be wrong, but even through the praise of little people, God is glorified. Um, and there is something significant about his people praising him. Uh, let's nip over to Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Thank you very much. So uh, there it is. You, you, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, like from us. Why? Because you created all things, and at your will they were created and have their being. So that's God's glory in creation. Um, the New Testament also refers to God himself as being glorious. Um, in Ephesians 1.17 it says, the glorious Father. And in Acts 7.2 Stephen says, the God of glory. Uh, I can't remember the rest of the sentence, but I think I've probably proved that point enough that God is glorious in himself and one of the ways he expresses it is in creation. Now let's go to Isaiah 42. And in Isaiah there is this issue of God's people being his servant who have totally failed. 
and the question of whether, this is Isaiah 42, verses, well, we'll do the verses in a moment. Um, his people are headed towards exile in Babylon. This is not what God had promised. They're going to be out of the land. They're going to be away from him. They're not going to be a holy people at that rate. Uh, and they failed as a servant. But this other servant comes in who is very like Israel but isn't quite Israel. And he's going to do something remarkable. The people are inclined to go and look to idols to save them. But, um, well, let's just have a look at Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. So could somebody read that? Yep, thank you. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. And the next verse as well, please. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. Thank you very much. Right, would you like to confer with the person next to you as to what mood those words convey? What mood? Like calmness? So just, just to have a quick chat with the person next to you. What do they think? Mood? Okay. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Anybody else like to enlarge on that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that jealousy is important there, isn't it? Because God is saying, you're giving your, my glory to idols. I'm not having that. I'm the God of glory. You don't give glory to them. You don't ascribe to them the ability to save and how wonderful they are. That's me, says God. Yeah, what were you going to say, Grace? Angry. It is. It's a well done. Yeah, shall we? Stop worshipping the idols and worship me. There's this sort of, the, the, the thought of God's glory is not just put across as a, a, a cold fact. It's put across with some intensity. You know, God says, I am the God of glory. How dare you give glory to anybody else? Uh, no, that's right. It, it isn't. It is more a question of how people respond, isn't it? I mean, it, God isn't any less glorious in himself, but people ought to respond to him as such, and instead they're responding to the idols. Um, I will not yield... What does, the, what does the authorized version say, David, in verse 8? I will not give my glory... I will not give my glory to another, meaning I think I will not allow my glory to be given in some sort of responses and worship and praise to idols. I, that's the word I had, indignation, that, that God is just saying, this is not on, I'm not having this. Um, and uh, let's look at Isaiah, let me just say his name, um, I am the Lord, that is my name. 
I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God is saying, I'm not sharing my glory with anybody. I don't overlap in my glory with anybody. I don't make it 50-50, 60-40 with somebody else. I am the God of glory and I don't give away an ounce of my honor to anyone else because I am the God of glory. Yep. Isaiah 48, 1 to 11. This is a little bit longer, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, uh, this is enlarges on that thought. Um, could we have somebody to read Isaiah 48, 1 to 11, please? Listen to this descendant of Jacob. You are given the name of Israel. You are descended from Judah. You take oath by the name of the Lord. You acknowledge the God of Israel, but you are not honest or sincere. You, are, you call yourself citizens of the holy city. You depend on the God of Israel. His name is the Lord of armies. Sorry, got lost there. Yeah, could you go on to the to verse 11, please? 11, okay. I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tested you in the furnace of suffering. Um, okay. Yep. Isaiah 48 is about God saying, I am the God who saves. I tell you about it. I do it. And verse 5, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my images brought them about. My wooden image and metal God ordained these things. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on I tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now, not long ago. Have you not heard of them before? You have not heard of them before today, so you cannot say, yes, I knew them. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old your ears have not been open. I know how treacherous you are. You were called a rebel from birth. For my own name's sake, I... I delay my wrath for the sake of my praise. I hold it back from you so as not to destroy you completely. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not give my glory to another. So it just expands on that, doesn't it? I'm going to save you. Nobody else is going to do it. I'm insistent on this. I will not give my glory to another. So you've got this sort of really, um, hope it's sort of making sense, sort of intensity of God's glory and particularly his glory um, as distinct from idols. So this is one way of understanding what sin is actually, to rob God of his glory. Uh, and it crops up, uh, let's just chase this thread here, Psalm 106 verse 19 to 21 which refers to the sin of Israel Psalm 106 verses 19 to 21 and 
Yeah, Ashwin will read that. Yep. Psalm 106, verses 19 to 21. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt. Thank you very much. So this is referring to the way God has operated and who he is and an exchange. They exchanged their glory, or as I've got in my, their glorious God, for the image of a bull which eats grass. So this is taking God's glory and uh, ascribing that glory not to God, but to an image, an idol, an invention, something that seemed good to human beings, but is not who God really is. Um, and if we go to Romans 1, 18, this is the definition that Paul gives us at the root of sin. I'm sure it's not the only root of sin, but it is a root of sin. Romans 1, 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, can, next couple of verses, Sorry, please. Yeah. Um, claiming... To be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Thank you. Yeah, so here this fundamental sin of taking God's glory and instead of giving worship and thanks to him, plonking that glory, as it were, on images, made-up versions of God, um, Images made like human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Uh, we don't actually live in a, a culture that makes um, fabricated images of God. I mean, just as culture from the, from a Hindu culture, I, uh, Hindu temples with gods all over them crawling up the walls and everything like that. But uh, sorry. Um, I think we all we all do actually, don't we? Because it, it it's it not it doesn't have to be a metal image. It can be a mental image, saying this is what I think God ought to be like, and that's robbing God of His glory. And I mean, this idea of glory gives us an, an, an insight into what sin is. It's it's taking who God really is and twisting it, or giving our allegiance to another God, looking to our, for our guidance to another God, um, making another thing the big thing in our lives. I mean, you can take good things and make that into a little God, can't you? I mean, parents making their children into a little God 
and basing their whole lives around their children or making a career into a little god and basing everything around that or, you know, you, you name it. Um, taking the glory of God and exchanging it for something else. Let's uh, sing something. And I had, uh, I'm aiming for Ephesians 2, but we're going quite a long way around to get there. Um, So we thought about God's glory, his substance, his, and how we respond to it. And I, I think it, it's fair enough to say it's how he is, or you know, I'll put is rather than are, how he is and how he operates, and particularly in the area of salvation. So God is glorious. Uh, his creation shows his glory. Um, in salvation, he operates to save his people. So we saw, we saw that in Isaiah 2. Not the idols. And he will not give his glory to the idols. He has glory to himself in the way he saves his people. And I don't, Now I'm going to take us to expressions of his glory because he is glorious and that sort of changes the space around him which picks up on his glory. It sort of picks up the aroma of his glory and uh, there is a particular um, demonstration or visualization of his glory in the Old Testament. Anybody like to guess before we actually look at some texts? Visualizations of God's glory in the Old Testament? Yeah. Carry on. Yeah. Um, and I would take you to what happened towards the end of that vision. They fell down. And what happened... Because it, it came to a sudden end, that vision, because of what? I think there was another end to that vision, wasn't there? Didn't the temple fill with something? Smoke, cloud and smoke. That's where I was heading for, because that's why I chose that sound. Let the cloud and fire appear. Um, cloud, smoke, fire. Um, and... Um, the rabbis refer to this as the Shekinah glory. That is not in the Bible. That's something that the rabbis have called it that. But it comes from the idea of uh, Shekinah is to dwell. So I think the idea is that when God dwells somewhere, this is the glory that you see around him. So um, I better not spend too much time on this. There's a lot of things to consider first place in the bible yes thank you yep that's the second one exodus um that's exodus thirteen twenty one is the burning bush and i think there's an example of god's presence with smoke and fire before that sorry Yep, there's the cloud and fire that led them before des uh, through the desert. Um, I'm thinking quite a bit before that, actually. 
So I'm going to say in the life of Abraham, have a quick talk to your neighbor. Can they think of fire, um, cloud, uh, smaller scale life of Abraham? Just ask your... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's Genesis 15, worth looking at actually. So I think this is the first appearance of the actual um, expression, visualization of God's presence and his glory in cloud and fire. So this is Genesis 15. Verse 17, and where's the microphone got to? Could, could Corinne read us Genesis 15, 17? Right. Um, when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, it, fallen a smoke brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between pieces. Thank you very much. So if that, if that um, translation is accurate, there's smoke and there's fire, uh, on that particular occasion with Abraham and then we see this with Moses and as, uh, as, as Ray said uh, in the Exodus the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud and there was the pillar of cloud and fire and it is linked with his glory Exodus 16 Exodus 16 is the the time when the Israelites were rebellious, or a time when the Israelites were rebellious, I think I'm correct in saying, and they're told in Exodus 16 verse 7, having grumbled, in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? And then if you go to verse 10... Am I right? Yeah. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord in appearing in the cloud. And then in verse 11, um, yes, the Lord says, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord. So there's something about his identity, if you like, his name, his glory, and it's, uh, there's a visual expression of it in the cloud. Um, so we could follow that trail, and perhaps I'd better resist the, opportunity, the, the temptation to follow that idea of the, the cloud. Um, you get it in Ezekiel at the beginning. Uh, you get the likeness of the appearance of the glory of the Lord, uh, the sense that what, what he's seeing in his magnificent vision doesn't really begin to touch how glorious God really is. What he sees is the likeness of the appearance of the glory of the Lord, you know, an approximation to something that's nearly sort of the glory, but the glory is much bigger than that. Um, Thinking of clouds and going into the New Testament, um, any thoughts about clouds in the New Testament Yeah, Jesus was taken up in a cloud. Uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, a cloud came down. And 
it, it makes you think that it's not just a meteorological statement, is it? It's, it's a theological statement because the cloud is to do with the glory of God. Um, and I, I probably better not try and follow that too much because we'll get carried off in a cloud, yeah. But as we come into the New Testament, let's look at John 12, 23. Because we get a particular focus or a, a, a couple of focal points of glory in the New Testament. John 12, 23. Now let me just set the scene for John 12, 23. Throughout John's Gospel, it has been said, the hour is not yet. So at the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee, Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. And then there are times when he, people come to arrest him, but his hour has not yet come. And I think there's some couple of other instances, my hour has not yet come. And there's this clock ticking all the way through John's Gospel. And you're waiting for the alarm to go off. And when you get to John 12:23, who's going to read this for us? Thank you, Angela. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Yeah, could you take, do the next uh, verse as well, please? I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Thank you very much. What's Jesus referring to when he talks about a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying and producing much fruit, which is what it actually says? His death. That is very significant. Because what he said is, the clock has now, this is it, now is the Son of Man glorified. And how is he glorified? By dying on the cross. How is the Son of Man glorified? By dying on the cross. That's a remarkable thing. And um, I think Daniel referred to this the other time about um, Martin Luther's theology of glory and theology of the cross. Where do you look, you know, in this way of, in, in John's way of putting it, where do you look to see most the glory of God? And his answer would be, you look at the Savior dying on the cross. That is the place where God most shows how glorious he is. That is where the Son of, Son of Man is glorified. And... Um, I mean, there's more to it than that, but there's at least that. When Jesus is heading for the cross in John 17, he has the same thought, or at least a, a very much associated thought. John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And then he says in verse 4, I, finish, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Um, and he says, of course, it is finished on the cross, doesn't he? So here is a particular place. I mean, you could argue about whether it's the, the most place. I think I would certainly be happy to go with that thought. The place where God is most glorified on the cross. I mean, Jesus is exalted to glory afterwards, for sure. But there's a particular focus. When Christ dies for sinners, 
here you see the character of God, the humility of God, the passion of God, the determination of God, uh, the love of God for sinners as Christ dies on the cross. Here is the Son of Man glorified when a seed falls into the ground and dies and produces much fruit. Um, how he operates is glorious and who he is is glorious. Um, let's look at, uh, skipping along now, Hebrews 1 verse 3. Who is Jesus in fact? Hebrews 1 verse 3. Who is the Son? Hebrews 1 verse 3. This is who he is and how he operates. Um, Hebrews 1, verse 3. Julie, thank you. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Thank you very much. This remarkable statement about who Jesus is. You know, the writer of the Hebrews just bursts in with this statement of the doctrine of Christ, this Christology. Who is he? He is the radiance of God's glory, the outshining of the glory of God. When you see Jesus, you see the outshining of the glory of God. Um, he is the one through whom the worlds were made. He is the one through whom... Uh, creation is upheld by the word of his power. He is the one through whom he shows himself to the world. He is the one through whom he saves his people. Um, and he is the very expression of the glory of God. This wonderful uh, Christology. And we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which is such a wonderful statement, isn't it? Uh, we're going to come and... Uh, Look at some more in just a moment. Let's sing something else, shall we? Uh, well, I'm still aiming for Ephesians 2. I hope we'll get there in the next few minutes. Um, God is glorious. The way he operates is glorious. Uh, he shows his glory in creation. He shows his glory in salvation. He ex the, the, the place around him takes on his glory. So when he's there in the desert, it is shown in the cloud and fire. Um, and his presence, his particular presence in Jesus, uh, is the expression of his glory. Not cloud and fire, but a person in this case. And yet we also have this sort of ho uh, glorious space around him. And where we're headed is rightly called glory um, because it's the space where God is. So let's see if we can uh, just home in on that for a few minutes. One of the, perhaps it's a little bit clearer in the New Testament, that one of the particular glorious things that, G, that uh, God does is to save sinners you know remember I said about the footballer you think what a wonderful goal just fantastic the timing of it the balance of it the way that he just seems to do it fantastic 
uh, a, a wonderful action. And uh, the, the New Testament, or the, the Scripture, but particularly the New Testament, focuses on God's amazing action in saving sinners. Anybody see the repair shop? Anybody know the repair shop? TV program, repair shop? Yep. Arsena's seen it, so... Um, if you don't know the repair shop, it's, uh, uh, it takes place actually down somewhere near Chichester, actually. And somebody brings in you know, a, an old possession. Maybe it's a watch or something like that. It used to function fantastically, but it was owned by their great-grandfather in the Crimean War. It got trodden on, bashed about. Um, the wo- it doesn't work anymore. The hinges don't work. You can see it's a watch, but it's not... Um, you know, it's a pocket watch, obviously. Uh, but it, 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 it needs repairing. <laughs> and they bring it, and Jay Blades says, Oh, yeah. And he, uh, and then they hand it to a guy with multiple glasses. This guy with sort of five or six pairs of glasses, and the skill of those people to repair something and bring it back. And then the, after a little while, the owners come back and it's under a cloth. And they say, "You looking forward to seeing this?" And they say, "Yeah. What have you done?" And then. It's revealed in all its glory. And they go, oh, that is just so beautiful. How wonderful that you've, you've restored this. And it's, if, you, if you've never seen it, it's a very heartwarming sort of program. Uh, and how much more the Lord God, who takes people who have been made in his image, but ruined by the fall, in which there is not a single bit of them that hasn't been spoiled in some way or another, who can pick them up, take them to himself, bring them into his favor, lavish time and attention upon them, and uh, begin a work of restoration to save sinners, to get the most unlikely material, and to change it into something glorious and wonderful. I mean, what a wonderful work that God does and how amazing to see the finished articles all lined up wow did you do this wow did you make that out of that and uh, this is uh, this is where I'm heading with this um, let's go to Ephesians 2 Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. Where's the microphone got to? Yeah, um, Roger, please. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Turn the page. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. 
like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace mm -hmm. expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Give us one more verse. Okay. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you very much. We are God's handiwork. You know, he's taken us and is doing this restoration and rebuilding and recalibration and, and everything else. And it's a fantastic um, description, isn't it? Uh, we were deserving of wrath, but in his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace uh, in ages to come. Look at that one. Look at that. Look what I did with that. Look at what I made of that. In the coming ages, he will show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved. And if we just go back to chapter 1, it, it did, you notice it didn't actually say glory there, but uh, it does in, in chapter 1, where he comes in with thanksgiving. Praise be uh, this is Ephesians 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory which is freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. To the praise of his glory to the praise of his glorious grace. And here's a particular thing in which it is solo dea gloria, to him alone be the glory. He saved us. We didn't think of it. We didn't contribute to it. It isn't partly our, to our credit. It's totally to God's credit. And this particular thing um, in, the, in, the, in the glory to come, and if we've got a moment, I will look at a verse about that. But in the glory to come, uh, look what God has done to these trophies of his grace. That's the expression that Christian people use, the trophies of his grace. See what I did to him alone be the glory. 
that's where I wanted to get to, and, and I've actually got there. Uh, there's a couple more verses we can look at, but let's sing. Can we sing to the praise of his glory, though? Um, in, a, in a minute, I'll ask Daniel if you could close in a prayer and perhaps think of people um, that we would just be committing to the Lord. Let's let, let Daniel think about that for a moment. Uh, I mean, where I got to isn't quite the end of the story because uh, it isn't just that being saved now is to the praise of his glory. It is the future and if only I could find my notes, I would tell you what the reference was. If you go to Romans chapter 8. Where we're we're headed to, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, Romans uh, Romans 8 is what we're going to read from, but in chapter 5, he says, we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand, but there's more than that. We boast in the hope of the glory of God, meaning that in that glorious place, which is glorious because God is glorious, we're going to be there too. That's where we're headed. And he, it is, Christ has been tasked with keeping us, as, as Daniel was saying this morning, and safeguarding us right through to the end of the journey. And our life on earth is not the end of the journey. Being in glory is where the end of the journey is. Uh, And I'll I'll just remind us of Romans 8, where it says in verse 30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And in that verse, you've got the whole sweep from beginning to end. We're not glorified yet, but it's a certain as can be, so that he can finish the sentence by saying it. Uh, And that's where we're headed, to glory. We sang this morning, the sky, not the grave, is the goal. I mean, that's the way of saying that, isn't it? Won't that be amazing, to be with Christ in glory? When Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost unbelievable, isn't it, that what was done in Christ will rub on off, rub off on us to such an extent that we will be raised. What was mortal will put on immortality. What was corrupt will put on incorruption. What was in shame and lowliness will be raised in glory. And that's where the, the thread leads us to in the end. And I just wanted to say that before we finish. And perhaps Daniel could pray for us, please.